Well, with that, let's get started. Hello, everybody. My name is Damian Shield, and it's my pleasure to host and welcome you all to this week's weekly webinar here at the Center for Medical Simulation. I'm the senior director of the Institute, which is the faculty development arm at the Center for Medical Simulation, an independent nonprofit based here in Boston, Massachusetts that collaborates with all of the different Harvard hospitals. And I have here with me, my colleagues, Mary Fay and James Lipshaw. So James, if you don't mind introducing yourself first and then we'll go to Mary. Sure, uh, my name is James Lipshaw. I am the education and media instructional designer here at the Center for Medical Simulation. Uh, what that means is I am an educator by training, um, formerly a member of the uh, Boston Public Schools uh, teaching team. And I have been at the Center for Medical Simulation since 2016, um, four, four plus years now. And mostly what I work on is with our clinical faculty on sort of principles of learning design, curriculum design, and most importantly, I have been sort of our online learning person for the past four years. So it's a little bit like doing something your whole life and then suddenly in 2020, it got very, very popular. Uh, and so I've been benefiting from that in the sense that I've become very important, but uh, also benefiting from it in the sense that I'm needed for a lot of things right at this moment. Uh, so that's, that's my gig here. It's so great to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you describe all the work that you had been leading before the pandemic and also how it's taken center stage, as, as you mentioned. So you're indeed quite popular. Mary. Yes, indeed. I can hardly remember life before James Lipshaw. When you said you've only been with us for four years, I was shocked. Just... I don't even remember life before James. Um, so um, good morning, everybody. My name is Mary Fay. I'm the Senior Director for Teaching and Learning at the Center for Medical Simulation. And I'm a nurse by education um, and have been with the Center for Medical Simulation for um, around five years or so. And um, particularly love curriculum development. Um, was never a fan of online learning until I actually did it. And now I'm a huge fan of online learning because I just think it opens up so many more possibilities. And so I'm excited to be here today with James who has helped me out on tons of projects uh, over the years. So happy to be here. So at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we wanted to really remain connected with our worldwide community of alumni as well as other collaborators and colleagues in the field of simulation education and experiential learning. And we launched this series. We've done a number of different programs from lecture series, panel discussions. Um, and as we've updated the format, we've also have a series called Meet the Author where you get to meet authors and have them talk about their recent publications, but also the behind the scenes that goes into designing those projects and getting them to publication. Those have been quite informative. And then uh, we've also had open sessions, Ask Anything. This week, Ann Mullen, who's behind the scenes here helping us coordinate, she had the idea of focusing this Ask Anything on remote learning and inviting specifically James and Mary to talk with you all about your interest, but also share what we've done to, I wouldn't quite say pivot the Center for Medical Simulation because we've been online for about eight or nine years doing our regular debriefing assessment in simulation and healthcare trainings and doing a lot of work online with our virtual campus learning management system. And uh, online learning hasn't been a new thing, but how we're really taking advantage of switching to, to this medium. So um, I'm really looking forward to this session. James, if you don't mind, keep on clicking here, um, where we'll uh, complete our introductions, then really uh, have James and Mary describe some of the ways in which we've broken away from the past learning models and really gotten into what are the benefits and affordances of online learning and then creating new ways of creating experiences and sustaining our interpersonal connections and learning. And then we'll turn it to you for questions and comments. 
we actually would like to invite you throughout the presentation to use the Q&A function in your Zoom. You can click on Q&A and ask a question, but you also should feel free, feel free to introduce yourself and make a comment and be a part of the conversation. I wish that we could all be looking at each other and uh, just jumping in and interrupting, but the uh, format doesn't allow for that. So just connect with us through the Q&A and Mullen is gonna be monitoring that and she'll pop on screen to bring your questions to life. She'll be your avatar, if you will. And, um, and I think we'll have a super interesting and informative conversation that at the end, I will um, just share with you what's coming up in the weekly webinar and some other opportunities to keep on learning online. So without further ado, um, James, uh, love for you to share a bit of what you've gotten out uh, to learners. Um, you know, sometimes it's been around making the most amazing, perfect product. And sometimes it's been about getting something that's just the minimum viable to get the learning happen. And so all stages of development and drafts, just, you know, give us a little tour here. Sure. Um, thinking about. Yeah, happy to hop in. So I want to frame a little bit by saying that we have been doing online work for a while now. As Damien mentioned, we have our uh, debriefing assessment for simulation and healthcare, the DASH tool, and we've been running a four-hour synchronous online training for that for yeah, something like eight, nine years. Um, and so that is a, a program that we have a lot of experience with um, in terms of using the remote learning platform to effectively train people on debriefing and rating debriefing and being able to work in with and improve the debriefing of their faculty. So we have a lot of experience in that realm. And what I want to show you now is a couple of different projects that we're working on, some of which are things that predated sort of the current world circumstances where everyone is, you know, remote for as much as they can be if possible. Um, and a couple of things that are new. And I think the most important thing to remember, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, questions that you're going to want to ask yourself around moving your projects from in-person to remote. Um, we'll go through some of the, what I think are the core conceptual and design questions you should be like coming back to as you work on transitioning those projects. But what I want to show is just a couple of examples of things that were already online projects and what being online brings to the table for those projects. So the first one here is we've been working with a couple of institutions in Massachusetts, in the United States, and actually around the world as well on an online version of a speaking up training program. Now, the benefit of an online program here is the scalability of it, which is to say, because people are getting their feedback on this particular skill from a system that we've built, and from their peers in this large community of practice. And we'll talk a little bit about the research and theory behind building an online community of practice as well. Um, and Mary's really gonna be my expert on that here. Uh, because they are getting their feedback from this online community of practice, it re reduces the pressure on your faculty and the pressure on your faculty time, which of course then reduces the expense of the program for you. Um, so this is, this first video that I'm going to show is actually just a little trailer for an online speaking up training program. So you can get the sense of what this program looks like, where the need was coming from prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and play that now. Hey, listen, listen, crazy day today, crazy day. I'm running the floor and you wouldn't believe what happened. Larry Peters just had a syncopal episode. He was doing a case in room 14, uh, a sedation case, and he went down on the floor uh, with a thud. There's a, um, a medical student um, who was in there with him. Uh, uh, he's been with us for a while. I left him in there to monitor the anesthesia. It's just a sedation case. Um, I, but I told him to call you if he had a bigger problem. Uh, to deal with and so he's got your number he's going to call you i'm going to go down to the emergency room and take care of larry i'll be back as soon as i can we hear from nurses doctors techs 
So many of the healthcare professionals we work with every day that speaking up feels extremely hard. Fear of being seen as difficult, fear of retaliation, fear of being wrong in front of others, all these lead to staying silent. Every time someone doesn't speak up, it reinforces a culture of silencing and indirectness. People feel frustrated, people feel unheard, and worst of all, patients can end up harmed. One major reason for this is individuals not having the tools they need to speak up and open a negotiation when they don't agree with what someone else is doing. Our online programs help busy practitioners who want to communicate effectively in a hectic team environment by decreasing interpersonal tension and giving those practitioners the guidance they need to open a productive dialogue. Lots of reset algorithms is with the phrase WTF to WTF. And what that stands for is when you're thinking, what the F is that person doing? You flip yourself to wondering. So Dan, I hear you saying that uh, you're gonna go check on Larry and that leaves two rooms with me with two patients and I really wanna keep both patients safe. I don't think it's a good idea for, uh, for me to be looking in, in charge of both patients. Um, I wonder if someone else can check on Larry or if we can come up with another solution. What are your thoughts? Understanding our emotional reactions, holding the belief that our colleagues have positive intentions and logical underlying motivations, using our language to meet at a place of collaboration rather than confrontation. These are just some of the skills we teach. For the conversational skills that drive healthcare forward, speaking up, feedback, debriefing, you need peer and expert feedback and practice reps to allow you to overcome the barriers that exist in the real world. These conversations will never not be difficult. That's why they're called difficult conversations. But with specific tools from speaking up experts, with feedback from a community of practice, with a desire to improve patient outcomes, you can find the help you need to speak up. So the takeaway from that piece is just that there are some really complex, difficult team-based skills that we're already working on online programs to try to help build competency and mastery with. So if you're thinking about your, your program and you're saying, the thing that I'm asking my learners to do is really complicated, like there's no way that we can get these kind of skills taught as we're trying to move into a completely remote environment, people are already working on, people are and were already working on pretty complex tasks and pretty complex team behaviors in a completely online space. So there is definitely hope for you. Watching the trailer, James, it, it makes me reflect on the idea that simulation programs are uniquely positioned to go online in part, I think because of our video production capabilities. I, I think comparing a sim program with a the group in your institution that does online learning, a sim program has the set, the video uh, production capability, the education credibility, the clinical background, and that inclination towards technology. So I think um, suits a lot of us that weren't like Mary weren't necessarily pro online learning. I think it's a way to use your sim center towards extending learning plus all the benefits you mentioned. I agree. And I, I think that for a lot of simulation centers, particularly places like us that aren't, uh, you know, formally attached or physically attached to a, a live hospital, there can be a feeling in this moment of being a little boxed out of the operations that are happening. And one of the things that we have the ability to do that say a in situ, a fully in situ simulation center can't do is we can do a lot of filming in our center. We can create these really immersive, you know, first person scenarios just because we can film in our center without any risk to patient confidentiality, um, which is not something that you necessarily have the ability to do in an in situ simulation setting. So I think that's one thing that as a simulation center that's not necessarily attached to a hospital, you may be looking at the current moment and being like, we're sort of getting boxed out. They don't want to send their people to a place that they don't need to send them to. Um, they want everything in the hospital or nothing at all. And so I think there is an argument that we have some things that we can do um, that you can't necessarily do in an in-situ site. Um, so the next piece I wanted to show, this is a newer 
um, case study. Uh, and the piece of this that I think is really important is that we've found that even without necessarily running our learners through a first person simulation where they are acting as themselves in, the, in a simulated environment, you can still get a really positive beneficial uh, debriefing that reaches your learning outcomes by exposing them to a case study of something that seems very likely to happen or something that really could happen in their environment. Um, and then having a productive conversation around, well, what would your team do here? What could this team do better? What strategies would you bring from your experience? The same sort of moves that we make in a debriefing on a simulation that they participated in, you can make those same moves debriefing a case study. And in this case, we actually used a case study that was based on a needs assessment and conversations with the department in question um, around some scheduling issues and interpersonal conflict and interprofessional conflict that they were having. Um, so I just want to show a minute or two of what this case study looks like. And then you can sort of imagine the debriefing that comes from all the issues that come up in it. You're going to be hearing a lot of my voice in this. In these the OR things. has four cases today, scheduled to last until 2.30 p.m. The surgeon has a case on the wait list that needs to be done this afternoon before a week-long vacation. The staff administrator has already informed the surgeon that all cases need to be finished in the OR by 5 p.m. The anesthesia attending needs to speak in an important meeting at 5.30 p.m. across town, and the OR nurse has child care issues at 5. You are the surgeon, anesthesia providers, and nursing team in this OR for the day. You've worked together in the past, but not recently. It's currently 7.30 a.m. in the OR. The surgeon has just called into the room and the huddle has been performed with the entire team. All concerns have been addressed. The anesthesia resident is getting ready to transport the patient into the OR. The anesthesia attending is ready to assist the resident in preparing the patient to go to sleep. Hi, I'm going to go get the patient and bring them in. Are you ready? Yep. Do you need me to go with you? If so, I just need a few minutes to finish this count. Um, will you come and help with transport? Uh, sure. I'll meet you over there. Just let me notify my attending. Okay, perfect. Meet me in White Periop. It's, it's Bay 18. Hi there. Uh, we're getting ready to bring the patient to the OR. Uh, paperwork is all set and it looks like everything else is ready to go. Great. I'll be right down. Uh, by the way, I have a case on the wait list that I need to do today, so uh, anything we can do to help expedite the day will really help. Thanks. The patient is in the OR now. The nursing team has just completed their pre-surgical checklist when they noticed that one of the instruments was not processed properly and is considered unsterile. We have a contaminated instrument. I need to get my SLC and get this case repicked. <sighs> How long will that take? Um, we're going to need about 30 minutes. Looks like we're going to have a little bit of a delay. Everything's fine, uh, but let me give you some medicine to help you relax. It's now 9.20 a.m. The OR has been successfully set up. So this goes on, and one of the things that you see as it moves towards its conclusion is you get something that you don't get in a live simulation, which is the internal monologue, the thoughts of the people in the case as it is happening. Um, and those are based on real conversations that we had with the anesthesia team, the nursing team, the surgical team in this OR setting about what do you think when this happens and there's a delay in your OR? What do you think when you're this far behind schedule? And we use those true to life internal monologues to flesh out what's happening here. And the debriefings around this are really, really interesting and generative and successful. Um, and this is entirely a virtual debriefing and simulation. Um, everybody is safe and in their own space or in their own home while they're doing it. And we've been really happy with the outcomes for this for our operating room teams. Yeah, James, you know, I just want to highlight something important you said, which is the work that went on before you created that to make sure that we had identified a real issue that people could identify with and all the work you did around the dialogue. I think that Having that in place is what leads to such great debriefings because, you know, when we debrief after showing, and this is the OR team's um, uh, course, when we debrief after that, people so identify with the issues in that case because they've all been there a hundred times. It's just, it's so real to them. 
let, let me come in and problematize a little bit what you guys are saying. So uh, to Vanessa's question, this is an, this is a narrated PowerPoint. Uh, it's an audio file with, uh, with those very nice graphics that James either created or, or acquired. But, um, you know, in a, one part of my question is, okay, so you, you did the needs assessment that Mary discussed. You, people wrote out the case. The case study is in paper form. That's very classic educational Harvard Business School and many other places uses teaching by the case study. So that's there. My question is, how long does it take to go from the written case to the recorded PowerPoint? And more interestingly, what's the added value? Like, why is this so much better? To me, as I'm listening, I'm feeling like the I'm drawn into the characters maybe a little differently, but I just want to know from you guys, why do you think this is that much more important than just handing out the case study and having people read it? That is a really interesting question, Damien, and I think it really gets to what happened in the design process around this particular case. The answer is, I think from, from the time that this case was written up sort of in a, you know, half day of conference between a couple of key people in those departments with representatives from nursing, representatives from surgery, representatives from anesthesia. Um, I think total work time on this was probably less than 10, 10 hours from the generation of that case with the key stakeholders to the production of this video format. Um, and it went through a couple versions. The initial recording it was just an audio recording where a single piece of text popped up that would say this, you know, anesthesia resident when the anesthesia resident was speaking, surgical attending when the surgical attending was speaking. Now, we wanted to flesh that out a little bit just to create this, you know, our, our colleague Dan Raymer used to call them just like little, little nuggets of realism or little like puffs of realism that would get people activated um, it doesn't have to be perfect, high fidelity, everything, but you just want the little thing that's going to hook the person into the simulation. And so for me, I think that seeing the people in the room, seeing the clock, I think is very activating for a lot of these folks who are really feeling time pressure and time pressure is really the central uh, interprofessional conflict that they're trying to work out in this particular OR. Um, and so that was sort of what our learning objectives were centered around. I think that seeing the clock ticking by and being like, it was 7.30 and then 10 seconds later in the PowerPoint, it's now 9.20. That was very activating for the folks in that case. That's so helpful, James, especially one key thing that what I'm hearing is that in learning by the case method, one is commenting on what the participants or protagonists of the case are going through and what they could do. Here, once they start to see the clock and then in the debriefing, we ask them, what would you do? How would you change this situation? Then it's very personal and it's about your mental models and your actions. And so it seems like the audio and the visual helps, helps bridge that from an abstract idea on a page to something one can be committed to. Mary, what, um, What's this all making you think about? You know, I, I really think about how humans in general really respond to story. And in my mind, as I watch this, I become much more immersed in the daily life of an OR team. It, you know, it's just much more engaging to me. And I think that level of engagement is one of the things that just, I, I think it draws people in. So they're they're sort of, you know, living the story is a little bit too strong of a statement, but they're just much more engaged, much more involved. It's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's a level up in realism from a case study. The context and, and I yeah. think the, the emotional realism right. that, so there's the conceptual realism in like the time is ticking, we're late. And yeah. then the emotional realism of the clock, or if we had the beep, 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 which I think you have in the next one, James, that multi-channel sensory processing kind of turns on not to I'm always the one to get the neuroscience geeky activation but it's like you know activate your uh centers and uh get a shot of uh, dopamine etc so cool well thanks for indulging me in that 
anything you want to add about uh, this program before we go on to the next one? Yeah, I'd love to keep flipping through here. So this oh, next yeah. one, this is uh, so this is a little more interesting, and I think this is a little more down the lens of what people are thinking that they're trying to do as they move simulation online. So this is a case that we have been running in our online courses, which is a deteriorating patient simulation and debriefing where the providers, the clinicians have to act in the remote setting as if they were acting in a room with this deteriorating patient. So things like, okay, I go to check the, uh, the blood pressure. What, what am I seeing? I go to check the vital signs here. What am I seeing? Okay, I want to give this medication. Can somebody give the medication? Somebody says, yes, I've given the medication. I did X and Y and Z. So it's really narrating what, you're, what you would be doing there. You're not getting the psychomotor skills of doing those things, but you are still narrating the team teamwork skills that are happening in here. Um, and in this case, we sort of base the design of this monitor around one of the programs that we use to control our actual mannequin in our in-person settings. For us, it's the LEAP program that runs the, the, the simulator. Um, but in those programs, there's sort of a case decision tree for your pre-programmed cases where if the uh, clinicians in, in it do X, this happens. If they do Y, this happens. And you go down that decision tree. And so we built this virtual monitor that you're seeing the full set of information for here. And it progresses. So the monitor changes and the patient image changes. So our patient here can go from looking pretty okay with a heart rate of 90 and a SAT of 95 to getting a little tachycardic and her SAT's dropping a little bit um, and her respiratory rate's going up. She's have a little, having a little to do a little bit more work to breathe. And then it gets really high and you can see she's sort of tripoding and she's really uncomfortable. And it's very seamless. This is literally just a PowerPoint slide. And that flow chart is a set of PowerPoint slides. And so this is the most, what we would call the minimum viable product, the most low tech version of building this case. You know, originally when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, I'm gonna build a, a website page and you're gonna be able to click on it and it'll take you through the thing. And that wasn't all necessary because to the end user, to you on the other side, you're seeing the same result and anyone can run through a PowerPoint deck and say, okay, I go from slide one, they just turned off the offending agent, I'm going to slide six, um, because it says to do that in my little notes here. Um, so this is the patient monitor, our deteriorating patient simulation. And then of course you have the debriefing afterwards. And Mary, maybe you can speak a little to what you think people have gotten out of those debriefings, because I've found them to be quite, quite interesting and quite effective. Oh my gosh, people get very engaged in the simulation. And, you know, James, we always talk about how debriefing really begins before your learners even go into the simulation. And I think this is a great example of how important it is to adequately pre-brief your learners um, because James explained that during this simulation, the clinicians can't actually do the things they want to do. And so you have to talk to them about if you wanna know the lung sounds, how do I get that? Well, you just ask. And so they need to know how to operate within this environment. But I find that clinicians always respond to monitors changing and they always respond to seeing patients in increasing levels of distress. So as James described, we have a series of pictures of our patient in more and more distress um, as the simulation goes on. And so getting them ready so they know what to expect and how to act in the environment just give them some clinical data, um, they respond. And then when we get to the debriefing, the discussions are always rich. People are very activated when they come out of the simulation too. They generally come out of the simulation with like, whew, you know, having to calm down a little bit because it's, um, it's very engaging. The team is able to talk to each other and talk to the patient. We have a live person. When the simulation is going on, we have a live person being the voice of the patient so the patient can actually communicate with them. We also have the patient's son come into the simulation. At one point, his face pops onto the screen so that the clinicians have to have a discussion with the son about what happened to the mom. Um, but the debriefings are always super rich. And you know, we've even had a, a few tense moments in the debriefings of this one too because people are so engaged. Yes. And we have different opinions about what the treatment path should have been. So um, this has been a very successful simulation. 
Um, so I have a couple follow-up questions uh, yeah. for both of you. Uh, first, I, you know, to me, I look at this patient and she's leaning forward and, you know, the saturations are low and the respiratory rate is fast. So she looks sick to me. So that's gotten me all activated. And I heard you say, James, there was a series of photos and that can change. And Mary, you said the voice is from the background. I, on, I was thinking that video could be used instead of stills. Um, and I was wondering how you decided on this. And the other thing I was thinking is, did, what about considering just the vital signs there and the standardized patient being available uh, which I guess would be a lot less scalable, but could possibly be interesting as well. So I was wondering if you could talk us through some of those design decisions. Yeah, and I think I think all of those are really good and interesting iterations. And it comes back to what we've been talking, what we mentioned, which is this idea of a minimum viable product, because everyone is so pressured for time, so pressured to get their learners into the things that they need to get them into. It's thinking about what is the least work and least setup. Now, as we have spent more and more time working on these online simulations, we have been building up to those things. So things like having a virtual patient, as you said, Damien, rather than having, um, rather than having it just be a, a still photo. So for example, here, you can see behind me in my background now, I am now in a simulated patient room. Now, if I threw a hospital Johnny on and uh, a nasal cannula, and I leaned back a little bit, I could now be the simulated patient. So it's really thinking about what can the medium do to allow you to get that kind of thing happening. Um, and I think, Damien, that as, as you said, it, would be, it could be very effective um, to have a simulated patient here going through that and then have the shared thing just be the monitor. You could even have the monitor up next to me. We've got a couple different programs where you can actually put a monitor up in the Zoom box with a little bit of television magic. And so you would see me and my monitor here and be able to watch as I deteriorate. Now that, and that would be very, very, very activating, even more so than a photo, I think. Um, it's just about what kind of television magic can you put in the pre-work to do? Um, because this, the still photo works. Everything on top of that is extra dressing that can be very effective, but do you need to do it with the time you have is the question. Exactly. This is almost like those old fidelity conversations. It's like, what's the minimum needed to get to the, to the educational goal? Because there's something kind of calming about it being still like, I know that we can pause. I know I can't make a big mistake. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah we, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I would necessarily want the patient to be huffing and puffing in front of me when I'm wrecking my brain. Yeah. yeah. You can even choreograph with a video playing in the background. So if we wanted to set this in a busy ER, we could have simulated film of an emergency room happening behind me and so it's like, okay, we really are the ER team in here, like, and we're really doing triage right now. Um, so there's a lot you can do with the medium to really build that level of engagement. It's just a question of what do you, what do your learners need and how long is it going to take you to do it? Because I think there is a lot of really interesting creative stuff that you can do in this space. And I also think that as you think about what is my simulation doing, what are my learning objectives, that for me is uh, that for me is the, always sort of the core, the core thing to come back to is uh, what, what is my actual outcome that I need here? Because I think it's really easy to get caught up in shiny objects. And, and I say this as both a millennial and as a technology person who helps do instructional design, it's really easy to get caught up in apps and it will be shocking to you to hear that I'm pretty anti-technology which is to say you want to use the fewest, simplest number of methods possible to get to your learning outcome because everything else is sort of frippery on top of the core thing. I think the majorly disruptive thing here is that if, if we're going to, if we're going to say, well, still is fine. Why not video? It begs the question still is fine. Why do we ever need to go back to the SIM center? <laughs> 
Uh, uh, question, Damien. So we'll talk about it a little more. Um, psychomotor skills is definitely one thing. And then there is the, uh, what, what we, we might call in, in research and education theory, like uh, the, the knowledge practice gap. And that is the idea that uh, practice does not always generalize um, and knowledge does not always generalize to practice. And so even if you get really used to teaming in this remote environment, there's always going to be a generalization gap between being able to do it in one environment and being able to do it in another environment. It's why sometimes you mentioned batting reps, you might be able to hit a thousand home runs in practice, and then you get out there with the crowd around and it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder in the live settings. So, you know, our, our colleague, Chris Rooson has done a lot of work and written a lot around this concept of sim zones, which is more and more complex tasks being added to the simulation, um, sort of increasing levels of teaming, ad hoc teaming versus like task training um, versus like full on systems interacting level, high levels of simulation. And as you move up, you know, things become more and more difficult, situations become more and more noisy. Um, and I would say the, I, the best thing you could possibly do is integrate all of those things, right? Like have the simple one, have the complex one, because you're ramping your learner up from a simple version of this to something that gets even gets much closer to the real live patient experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when if you're a sim program that's feeling paralyzed because you're non-essential, you're don't want to be exposed or deal with the mass or um, learners can't come. I think this really gives a way forward to achieve lots of the learning objectives that we used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if we're not too worried about disrupting ourselves, sim programs can jump right into uh, these, these uh, different ways of creating experiential learning. Yeah, guys, and I just want to uh, mention that there have been a couple interesting comments online um, that I just want to highlight because I so agree with them, which is all these decisions about how do we build the simulation or how do we build the case all go back to what your learning objectives are. Figure out what you want your learners to do. What do you want them to be able to do when they leave? Create a product that will get them there, which doesn't always have to be the fanciest, most highest tech product. Yeah. So I've really appreciated, we've, we've had some questions coming in, we've sort of been answering them and having a conversation around them. I'm going to talk very, very briefly about this current slide, and then we'll move on to some sort of core concepts around what you could be doing as you transition from in-person to remote work. So this video, and I'll just describe it, I'm not going to play through the whole thing, is our version of a flipped classroom exercise. So we've been doing our Dash online training for a long time. Those workshops are a four hour synchronous training. Um, and that is training on debriefing assessment. So you're learning how to rate debriefers. It's also building the skills to be a good debriefer because you're familiarizing yourself with what does good debriefing look like? What does not so good debriefing look like? Um, and how can I get from one to the other? This is a tool called the FACE, which does a very similar thing, but for feedback conversations. And so as we were building the FACE workshop, the online workshop, we were thinking about how can we make the online synchronous component of this more efficient, more effective, and really get to the live practice and remove a lot of the lecture. And so what we did is we recorded a number of the elements that normally in the Dash workshop are taught live. And we took them out of the live teaching. We recorded them in high quality here as little uh, punchy bite-sized recordings that you can get through. And then when you come to the FACE webinar, you hop into practice in the first five minutes. Five minutes into the FACE webinar, you are practicing, 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 looking at feedback, giving feedback, doing feedback conversations. And that is really punchy and really effective and really much less of use of faculty time, which is always something we're trying to be considerate of. And when you say short, I'm thinking you're like in the five to 15 minute video range or what's uh, what's been your target? Yeah, so my target is always under 11 minutes um, for an online viewing. Um, in my old uh, Silicon Valley days, we would call it the difference between an impulse buy and a, and a buy that you have to think about. And you always want to be on the impulse buy side of that range where people are like, yeah, sure, that's worth it. And they'll click through it. And I think in for time, 
I always think about things in terms of how long does an episode of television last? So if you put a 22 minute video on the internet, that is a full episode of television that you are asking someone to watch. If it is not as punchy as a full episode of television, you are going to lose them. Uh, I was thinking I have to put my kids on the TV so I can get my feedback training. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I would say under 11 minutes as, as, punchy and pithy as you can get it is best. Now I am a trained film editor. Uh, so I get things pretty tight, um, but that is something to think about. Um, and for non-trained editors, the best thing you can do is practice, 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 eliminate everything you can from your lecture that doesn't really need to be there. Things that in live lecture are often repetition of previous lectures in the inner on the internet that's really accomplished by a link it doesn't need to be repeated and so that is the most the high the biggest wrench term turn towards efficiency for me in designing these things is if you are referring to something that you taught last lecture in live lecture you might spend 10 minutes reviewing what you did yesterday on the internet when it's recorded you do not need to do that you can just point them back to that if they have not gotten there yet where you need them to be pointing them back to it for the refresher and that really tightens the kind of time we're using that's the sage words words of wisdom we're all benefiting okay we are going to be james lipshaw here mary any thoughts on your end in terms of flipping classrooms just, i know just, we've done we've done a ton of that in our when we moved our faculty development courses online uh, with James's guidance, I think that that has been a big decision for us is we want to sustain the connection and interactivity. There is no way to quote Mary Faye, there is no way in hell we're going to just lecture on Zoom. Um, so, you know, what can we make pithy bite-sized? Take a look at the, you know, 10 tips from Mary on building a safe container take a look at this model debriefing that some of us put together. Here's a couple not so perfect ones. Look at them in advance. We're going to talk about them. Then in our course, discussion is the learning method as opposed to just receiving or listening us go on and on. So um, I think James, you showed pretty high production value there on the flipped classroom. I know I've used all ranges um, from a selfie to, you know, kind of this is like a what are these like hundred dollar mics goes a long way to go from like in your background to something that sounds reasonable. Yeah. And, I will, um, I will say if, if I can give one tip on producing flipped classroom materials, the audio is the most important thing. Video matters much, much, much less. If you can get always your, said I had a face for radio. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. The, the audio is much less forgiving. Video you, is a little more forgiving, but if the audio sounds bad, pe bad people are going to tune out. Uh, people like me, it, I mean, it's literal noise, but it's also figurative noise in the sense that if you have really bad audio, people like me will literally, like, I have a hard time hearing what you're saying if the audio is really low quality, but that's also, a, it's a sort of a trained ear thing, but it's also your millennial learners or your Gen Z learners might have some trouble with it if it's I mean, really bad is, production quality. I think this is a really good point because we probably can't um, underestimate the value of production quality. Uh, I'll make an analogy um, and I'll try to be brief. When I worked at a different simulation program, we had, uh, as it was common then said, you know, for audio and video recording of simulation and OSCEs, standard definition is sufficient. We don't need to have HD quality video. It was the beginning of HD video, but then the phones got so good and the learners were watching everything in HD that they came to the SIM programs and it was so disappointing. And so, you know, if, if we're thinking about engaging learners online, we are competing with other online activities and other online learning, Khan Academy, YouTube, etc., And so it makes me think that minimum viable product is good. And yet in video production for flipping classrooms, it may not be enough to engage and have people invest in those pre-activities. So 
Yeah. Um, or another way to say it, you may want to do some work around learning what the minimum viable product for your audience actually is rather than what your single mental model of that is. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's one of the last points I have here on this consideration for remote learning. Um, you know, we have some time booked off for open discussion at the end. We've been talking about questions as they come in. I'm happy to continue talking about questions as we go through. And I wanna just spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about some considerations and thoughts around remote learning. We'll take any questions that come in as that goes on and at the end, um, and then we'll um, close towards the end. So the first thing I would really think about is, does this need to be synchronous? So as we talked about with our Dash webinar and moving to the face webinar, going from the debriefing version to the feedback version, we removed about two hours of synchronous content and made it not synchronous. And that just means that it is much more actually learner driven because the learners can view that content on their own time and in a manner of their own preference. So really just rethinking about what demands do you have on your faculty time? What needs to be synchronous? What doesn't? So sort of a case study or a model for this is in college football. This is going to be a bad example because this football team is really bad this year. Um, but uh, in college football, the students have 20 hours of practice time that they can do per week. That is a, that is a, that is a limit imposed by the organization on how much they can do. If you go over that, you get penalized. Things happen to your team that are bad. Um, now, the limit was on the learner time. They can only do 20 hours. So that's uh, if they do five days, that's four hours a day for five days out of seven. Now there's no limit on coaches time. And so what this program thought of is let's break the model a little bit here. What if instead of the classical model, which is we take the 110 people who are on our team and for four hours a day, we have all of them and all of our coaches together for four hours. So we get 20 hours with a one to 10 learner to student ratio every single week. What if instead of that, we had our coaches teach for 12 hours a day with groups of one third of our total group? So it's a lot more work on the coaching staff, but what they've done is you go from a 10 to one learner ratio for something that is really complex psychomotor and team-based skills to a uh, three to one ratio and the effective practice hours of individual feedback and coaching go from being something like two hours per week to an individual learner to six hours per week to an individual learner. And for something athletic like this, I just want you to imagine if you had six hours a week with a personal trainer one-on-one -on -one versus two hours a week with a personal trainer one-on-one, -on -one, what would your gains look like? What would the chart of that look like over time? It would be significantly different. And so rethinking the way that we use our time, rethinking the way that we use our learners time and the way that we split and the way that we use the resources that we have time being one of those. It's just an interesting case study to me. Another consideration is how do my learners interact with me? So here in your opening to this, Damien said, the way that you're gonna interact with us is any questions you have, put them in the Q and A, we're gonna talk about them right away. There's lots of other ways that you can do this kind of interaction. There are polls, there are chats, there are informal check-ins, there's informal polling. And the one thing that I am almost always preaching is check-ins because to me, coming from sort of my education background, people think of a check-in, it's like, oh yeah, it's nice to like check-in and hear, what, hear where people are, hear if they got it or not, and then we'll move on. But for me, what a check-in is, it's actually an informal, formative assessment. And formative assessment is the most important thing you can be doing in tracking where your learners are and where they need to be going. So a check-in is not just like, oh, it's a check-in, that's a nice to have. It is an informal formative assessment. It is a need to have. Um, <laughs> the image here is a tool that I actually used in my middle school classroom, um, which is both a method of uh, doing some check-ins and a method of a little bit of carrot on a stick for people because they get their little little avatar and they get to do stuff with it and it's fun. Um, let's say uh, it's a pedagogical tool, but you never know your adult learners might like that too. This is a really crucial one to me, which is what can the medium do beyond showing a wall of faces? Uh, so we're in Zoom right now and there's the two of us and we're the wall of faces up here. 
but there are all sorts of different ways that you can use this tool. So a really interesting project that we're working on with um, a learning lab right now is taking what they imagined to be a, a simulation van that they were going to do community outreach and training with, trying to increase interest in high school level populations uh, in healthcare science uh, profession careers. And that van had to become a remote van. And they had to think about how do we then create this experience that was supposed to be them in the space, make it engaging, but not have it just be a wall of faces in front of them. And there's all sorts of different ways to do that whether it is you know, putting a live camera on a GoPro on somebody's forehead and making it so that the view that they're seeing is not a face, but rather what the face is seeing in the room. So now this person in the room is my avatar. It's a little video gamey. And I say, I wanna to listen to the lung sounds and they reach forward and they take their stethoscope and they listen to the lung sounds. Or I say, you know, I wanna know what this person's pulse is, or I want to check X or Y or Z. I wanna know about this system. I wanna know about this system. It's flipping the camera itself, flipping the model. The image I have here is uh, the, the game Surgeon Simulator, um, which is very amusing. And I've been told by, by a couple of surgeons who have played it is actually pretty, pretty good. The graphics are not good, but, the, but conce the conceptual fidelity of the simulator is pretty good. Um, and so this is a group of people together playing the Surgeon Simulator game. Um, there are more uh, task-focused tools or more sort of uh, medical training-focused tools, whereas this is sort of a mass production model, which is supposed to be sort of funny and fun. Um, but there are versions of this tool where you could do a simulation like this, where one or two people are controlling this first-person view of the operation, and other people are observing or giving feedback or you know, doing whatever sort of teamwork stuff that they would be doing there. So you could be seeing something beyond me and my face in a box here. You could see something beyond the wall of faces. Um, for procedural skills in particular, say, say for example, if my camera was showing my hands here working on a procedural skill, or my camera was pointed down and showing me working on a task trainer, you could even get some of the uh, effects of I would be in person over your shoulder watching you do this task and giving you feedback, you can get some of that online. And it's not just like, okay, we'll send everybody remotely a task trainer. What you could also do is free up your resources and free up the space. Say you have two of the task trainers and you have 60 learners, you could have your task trainer in a space, you know, that's devoted to it, that you've disinfected, that you're keeping safe and social distanced, and you bring them in in shifts and the observing team is remote and they're watching and the other people are in the room and they're doing the task trainer. So it's just rethinking, how do we use the resources we have? How do we use the space we have? How do we use the materials that we have? Um, what can we do beyond showing a wall of faces here? And you know, James, while you're thinking and talking about, you know, think about the resources you have and how you can use them. One of the things that I wanna highlight that we're using more and more when we teach is peer mentoring. And I think especially for asynchronous courses like the original, the speaking up course is done asynchronously with the participants giving feedback to each other. And I just wanna highlight that that is a, a well-researched um, way to teach. We know now that, you know, we used to think, well, people have to know the content before they can like make an evaluation of it. Not true. We are actually really good at evaluating while we're learning. So please think of, near peer mentoring and peer mentoring when you're thinking about building your courses and what resources you have, because the learners are actually resources to each other in a very powerful way. Yeah, absolutely, Mary, thank you. Um, and so the other thing to consider, and this is a tough one, uh, is what are my learners days like outside of my classroom? We all had a professor who gave homework like they were the only professor that you had when in fact I had five of them. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm seeing some laughs. So, you know, even in in-person, this is not something that educators are great at thinking about um, because they are the most important You, I am the most important educator you have and my work is the most important and I'm gonna assign you 20 hours of homework even though you're, you know, doing rotations 80 hours this week. When are you gonna fit that in? I don't care. Um, it's unpaid labor, it keeps the system running. Uh, so what are my learner's days like outside of my classroom? This is mostly 
in this model, being very conscious of Zoom and screen fatigue and planning around it. Damien has introduced to us this 20-20-20 rule, which is every 20 minutes, look away from your screen at something else for 20 seconds, something that is at least 20 meters away. Um, I have a window back here, so I literally just turn around and look into my garden. Uh, we had a freeze, we had a, a frost here a few weeks ago, so it's gotten a lot sadder in the last week, but every 20 minutes out the window, 20 seconds, looking 20 meters away. The other thing is um, in being conscious of Zoom and screen fatigue, we had learned this in person, which, or not in person, we learned this in our efforts, which is there are moments of transition that happen in real in-person settings that you need to remember to simulate somehow in this remote environment. And so my example of that is we were running our virtual simulation, our remote simulation. They saw the patient monitor, they saw the patient, they were doing that. And then we said, okay, simulation over, time for debriefing. And we never gave them the space that it normally took to go outside of the patient room, walk down the hall to the debriefing room, sit down and have their reactions. Um, and we even teach when we teach in-person stuff, unless you have to, you should not be doing the debriefing in the patient room where you did the patient care. You should turn your back on it if that's the least you could do. You need to get yourself out of that space and get somewhere else, if at all possible. And we were not doing that in our remote setting because we didn't think of it. Uh, and so having implemented that change now, literally after the, uh, the simulation, we have people take out their headphones, get up, turn away from the computer, do a lap around the room, come back and sit down. And it is an amazing emotional change mm -hmm. when we say, okay, now we're in the debriefing room just by having simulated that transition. And that is, we weren't thinking about how much screen fatigue they had from being in a really intense activating simulation and then jumping into a really intense activating debriefing without ever stepping away from their screen. So just be really conscious of Zoom and screen fatigue. And if you can get your learners to do something like, even if it's just Japanese radio exercises at the start of your class where you're doing your jumping jacks and you're doing your spins, you know, get away from the screen as much as possible. Get away from the wall of faces as much as possible. Just be conscious of that fatigue. Um, and I'm gonna stop there with my considerations. Mary, Damien, if you got anything you wanna add, um, we're about three minutes from the end of the webinar here. I see, I see. Um, I, I just want to reinforce again that that idea of the zoom and screen fatigue and in our five day course we are very conscious of what we're asking of our learners it, it's a long time to stay engaged and so you know should you be doing a day long or a multiple days long or even multiple hours long when the break time comes it's really important to encourage your learners to get away from the computer and so we're we're very uh we're very directive about what break time means in, in our courses because, because if they don't do that, they become fatigued so much more quickly, it's almost impossible to stay engaged. And Vanessa has said, and phones, and I, I agree, phones too, because um, it's, just, it's just another screen. Um, well, thank you guys for such an amazing conversation and informative for me exciting and rejuvenating look forward towards what else we can do for experiential learning. Uh, one of the things I love about working at CMS is I really truly believe that we walk our talk on all fronts. Uh, so an example of a online learning, remote learning opportunity that we would have done in person or couldn't have done a two hour workshop is up your feedback game, a two hour bite-sized flipped classroom and synchronous experience with Janice Pelaganis and myself coming up December 2nd. If that's interesting to any of you, please join. Uh, following after that, uh, on December 16th, we have a very cool guest, uh, colleagues of mine in emergency medicine. Jenny Rulf is gonna be interviewing Risa Lewis and Adara Landry on what efficient mentorship looks like, which blends uh, a lot of these ideas and uh, they've written about it in Harvard Business Review. I think that'll be a great meet the author type panel. A lot of other opportunities. We're especially excited about our week long, four day long courses. We've got the advanced course coming up in February and also we'll be posting 
a new instance of our healthcare simulation essentials because the uh, both November and December are uh, really pretty full to capacity. So we'll be adding a course in February. We didn't used to be able to have courses in February because of the bad weather in uh, here in Boston. And um, Mary and James are gonna be doing a longer program called Teach Online, Engage with Confidence that um, I hope many of you will take advantage of in early January. So please uh, connect with us. Uh, Mary and I are leading our educational consulting side for short projects related to making your program zing online. So do reach out to us and you can work with James, Mary and myself. And, uh, but in general, please reach out and stay in touch through the interwebs, either through Twitter or directly by email and through our website. Thank you so much for being here with us today and watching in the future. And uh, especially my gratitude to Ann Mullen, Mary Faye, and James Lipshaw for coming up with the idea and making this session happen. So thank you all, and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.